0: Hey there, and welcome to Twin Movies. Every year, Hollywood releases two movies based on the same idea. How did this happen? Which movie did it better? What would make an even better third movie? We have the answers. So I'm Ben Phelps, and joining me is my banter buddy in crime. Dave Darick. So Gabe, welcome to our inaugural episode. We should probably explain to our listeners why we actually started this podcast series. Tell me, what's your... uh emotional connection or memory of this whole weird thing that happens with mainly Hollywood movies where you get two flicks coming out at almost the same time based on the same concept. When did you first become aware of this weird event in Hollywood history?
1: I mean, it might even be this one. I mean, the Deep Impact Armageddon or Bugs Life Ants, but it was certainly at that age in my formative cinema-going years because these are big-budget Hollywood blockbusters that- I become aware of the twin movies phenomena. And then only later when you start ghoulies and critters or whatnot. Yeah, I think probably these two movies, which is why it's probably a great pair to start with.
0: Yeah, I'm the same, actually. So this first episode we based on comparing Deep Impact versus Armageddon, head to head, toe to toe. And I agree. It was in the 90s that I first became aware of this. And I think there was this surge all of a sudden. I think there was a point called, let's call it peak twin movie moment. You
1: could call it peak movies. Movies peaked in the 90s. I think it's fair to say. Okay, so it's like peak a movies. a double bonus. Yeah,
0: Movies peaked in the 90s. The most rewatchable guilty pleasure movies happened in the 90s, according to us, and we're the authority of film historians yeah. in this regard. And as a result, we also saw a rise in twin movies. And so I became aware of it myself with Deep Impact and Armageddon. Another bout we'll have coming up, which was Dante's Peak and... Oh, of course. Volcano. Yes. And you mentioned earlier Bugs Life versus Ants. So let's break into it. On 8th of May, 1998, Deep Impact was released. A film about a group of astronauts landing a space shuttle on a deadly comet with the intention of blowing it up with nuclear explosives before it hits Earth and wipes out all life. Here's the official IMDb synopsis. After discovering an asteroid the size of Texas is going to impact Earth in less than a month, NASA recruits a misfit team of deep core drillers to save the planet. Nice. Now, I think it's pretty fair to say that those two films sound very similar, but I do think the IMDb synopsis does kind of hint of the tone of each film, which we'll get into. Mm. One is definitely more serious than the other. But let's talk about first, before we go into these films one-on-one, let's start with the personal connection. So, Gabe, tell me, what do these films mean to you? When was the first time you saw Deep Impact and what was the experience like for you?
1: Honestly, I have no recollection of seeing Deep Impact for the first time, though I know I saw it at the movies because I'd go to a lot of movies with my dad back in the 90s. I have a very distinct memory of seeing Armageddon at the movies with my dad. So I would say zero personal connection (laughs) to one. And yeah, like how old would I have been? 13 or 14? It's fair to say, Armageddon was the sort of film that spoke to me <laughs> as a 13 year old
0: moron. So, you saw Deep Impact at the cinema and I also Armageddon at the cinema. Oh, time. yeah.
1: I definitely saw them both at the cinema.
0: Okay. I'm ashamed to say that I saw Deep Impact for the first time three days ago in preparation for this podcast. I kid you not. Wow. So, this is how this broke down. I've seen Armageddon 30, 40 times. 30 of his films. Yep. Guilty Pleasure. I saw that at the cinema. And I was working at the cinema at the time, an art house cinema, and we got free movie tickets to go and see the art house films being screened at the cinema I worked at whilst I was studying at uni. But we also got a reciprocal relationship with the commercial cinema. And because I didn't want to go into work again, the gross irony of my cinema going life experience is that I actually saw less art house films when I worked at art house cinema than I did not working at the cinema because when I was working at the Art House Cinema, I wanted to escape from work and go and see some mainstream movies at that local commercial multiplex. Huh. So, I saw Armageddon there for the first time. But for some reason, I didn't see a Deep Impact. I, I wasn't jazzed about seeing it from the trailer, but I did catch bits and pieces on TV throughout the years. So, I feel like I've saw the entire film- In increments. Yeah. you that experience when, unless you record something on a VHS- or on a recorder, you'd just sort of catch bits and pieces, or you'd catch it halfway and watch the rest. So I actually hadn't seen the entire film. There were like there were entire scenes I hadn't seen, like a scene which we'll discuss where the president played by Morgan Freeman meets up and kind of makes a threat, really, to Tia Leone's reporter character in a kitchen. I'd never seen that part of the film at all. I'd just seen the, the big sort of money shots like the explosions and the guys in space. So it was really weird having seen Armageddon based on the same premise multiple times to then watch this film, not in the cinema, but at home 20 years after the fact. And this will affect as we get into it later on how this film has aged compared to Armageddon. It was a totally different experience.
1: I mean, it's fair to say if you've seen Armageddon 30 or 40 times, up to 80 hours of your life dedicated to Armageddon, that it'll be clear where your biases here will lie. (laughs)
0: Well, there was always the chance that I actually might suddenly appreciate it. deep impact, much like watching a classic European film where you go, oh, wow, I'd never seen that film. I'd always heard about it, but this film didn't compare to a classic.
1: Do you think deep impact is the classical European film to Armageddon's bombastic? No, no,
0: no. no, no. no. So, it turns out everyone was wrong. Right. No, it's not. So... Let's just go and do a little bit of a Hollywood history shallow dive. This won't be a deep dive, but I'll give you a few nuggets of truth here as to how these two twin films came about. And we can try and work out how the hell it happened that two films based on the same idea end up being released only two months apart. When I look back at this, there's a few things here that might surprise you. It turns out that Deep Impact started in the late 70s when the producer's basically proposed a remake of the 1951 film When the Worlds Collide. Have you seen that? No, have you?
1: No, I hadn't even Never heard, heard of heard it. Of it. No. no. Is it one of those disaster, like I earthquake think it is. or vul- not vul- that Steve McQueen one or wasps or something, sort of like that? No? No Maybe. idea. It says
0: When the Worlds Collide, so I'm assuming Like planets, planets smushing. Yeah. Ooh, that sounds yeah. good. Yeah. Mega. Mega. <laughs> so apparently it remained in development health ages. This is, by the way, Richard Zanuck, so a very famous producer in Hollywood history. And they approached director Steven Spielberg, who'd already made Jaws by that stage, and he was pretty keen. But he had already bought the film rights to the 1993 novel *The Hammer of God* by Arthur C. Clarke, which actually dealt with a similar theme of an asteroid on a collision course for Earth, and then our you know human- humanity's attempts to prevent its own extinction. So he wanted to actually direct that as one of his first projects for DreamWorks. The new studio that he started with-
1: Oh, SKG. Yeah. Katzenberg and Geffen.
0: But he decided to basically merge the two projects, the one from Zanuck and producer Brown, with the adaptation of The Hammer of God by famous sci-fi author Arthur C. Clarke.
1: Uh, Who's not credited on the film. So, this is the funny part,
0: is that they did this screenplay, which allegedly changed so much. So, basically, they merged these two stories- But after so many rewrites by the uh, screenwriter Michael Tolkien, it ended up being that they decided that they wouldn't actually credit either source. Yeah, so 40 years
1: years of development. And then in the end, there's just the two writers credited. Because I only found out about this Arthur C. Clarke business when I looked it up on Wikipedia or whatever, which lists it as being based on that. And, you know, so that was bizarre because, yeah, the credits on the film are just the two blokes who I guess must have rewritten it enough that that's- why they ended up with sole credit, right? Like- yeah,
0: but the weird part about it is is that they decided the screenplay in the end didn't resemble enough of the original source material that inspired this story, The Hammer of God by Arthur C. Clarke, didn't deserve a credit, he didn't deserve a credit, yet at the same time they did credit him in some other way, didn't they?
1: I don't know, what, just in, like, publicity? Yeah. Just to get a couple of, like, we- hard sci-fi nerds in there? It must have been, because right. if they credited him too much- are oh, they going to paint? He's get exactly. residuals or something. And so apparently, Hollywood
0: history goes that he was actually quite pissed off because when Spielberg buys your script and plans to make it and then doesn't, which we'll get to, basically the same film is made and you're not credited and not remunerated either. Understandably, uh, Arthur ain't
1: happy. Arthur C. Clarke has got to get paid.
0: <laughs> so what happened was after that is um, Spielberg became too busy. So he stuck around as an EP instead. And they then hired the director, Mimi Leder, to take over instead.
1: What was Spielberg busy with? 1996. Like Private Ryan or something?
0: 96. So, so that was prime
1: Sp- Spielberg, the 90s as well. I mean, that was still in his like-
0: Maybe the sequel to Jurassic Park. That was in oh, 97. Oh, yeah, one of them.
1: Oh, that's, that's subprime Spielberg right there.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, look, who knows? He was busy. Would Spielberg had made a better film?
1: Probably. Busy running DreamWorks. Uh, well, well, who's get to, to say?
0: We'll get to that. So- let's jump into Deep Impact. So, Gabe, do you like Deep Impact?
1: Not really. I mean, I liked it more now that I'm older. I guess when I was young and saw it for the first time, I thought it was not great. When I watched it recently for this, there was definitely a few parts that felt a little more emotionally resonant or something. Some reviewers described it as a little bit more adult. Well, as a little bit more of an adult than when I first saw it, I guess that worked a bit better for me. But- I don't know, it's not the best version of this story.
0: I'd say it's the most mature version of this story, but mature doesn't mean good.
1: Yeah, like what does that even mean? Is that a synonym for boring?
0: I think this one is arguably based on more science than fiction, in its execution, even though these films both take massive licences with actual science. This one has a tone mm. and seems to depict character motivations and storyline that seems closer to the real world True. than Armageddon.
1: Lily Sobieski definitely does some. She commits to big cry acting at various points and really gives it her all. So, yeah, I think they, they place a lot of the drama for the drama.
0: And also, this film, I think, has more moral conundrums than Armageddon. So, this one asks that question in relation to if an asteroid. Mm-hmm. if an asteroid hits Earth and <laughs> only <laughs> so many people can in you know safety in a an arc of some sort underground deals with that moral conundrum who do you choose do you choose the smartest the richest the best a combination of both a lottery armageddon has no interest at all in that question as to who do you try and choose to survive and represent humanity
1: i think armageddon has no interest in that cuz ultimately when you're watching armageddon you know that bruce willis and his crew of roughnecks are going to save the world. So who really gives a shit about some kind of like home-based lottery? Whereas, yeah, Deep Impact. And weirdly, that element of Deep Impact, the who will get to survive in some sort of seed bank or something, I'd completely forgotten that that was in the movie. Maybe because it'd been kind of blown out of my brain by 2012's sort of exact same version of that story. In my mind, I just thought Deep Impact was about, you know, old man De and his crew of very serious astronauts. So, yeah, I mean, maybe it's because Armageddon's just not interested in that idea because it it is of no consequence.
0: Yeah, I think you're totally right. It's in the synopsis on IMDb for both films, I think, where the synopsis for Deep Impact focuses on the comet being a catalyst for the moral conundrum as to how do you survive and who do you choose to survive, whereas Armageddon's synopsis just sticks strictly to the high concept of – can a group of unqualified, newly trained astronauts, who are basically like those kind of working class trucker characters from Alien, can they basically get up to speed in a short time to save the day from the uh, comet or the asteroid without any consideration as to when it hits? Because I think the difference is in Armageddon, all Earth will be wiped out entirely. So there's no even there's no need to even deal with the moral conundrum as to who will survive of the ten percent because it's implied that no one will survive. This is basically a zero-sum game, whereas in Deep Impact, they decide to make the comet a bit smaller, and its impact is deadly, but not as deadly. So, there's actually the moral conundrum as to who should survive, because someone does.
1: But given that, and spoilers here for anyone who hasn't seen it, the comet in Impact is split into two and only the smaller one hits Earth, it doesn't really matter in the end. It is a In the end, it is of no dramatic consequence, the whole who will be allowed in the arcs or whatever they are. So that whole story beat is ultimately interesting while you're watching it, but pointless by the end, because who plays Lily Sobieski's dad? It's not Toblowski. It's the guy who looks like Toblowski. Yeah, he looks
0: so much like he. (laughs) Toblowski too. That's right. It's like twin Toblowski.
1: Yeah. All the people stuck on the roads, like, "Oh, oh, teary farewells or whatever. Doesn't matter. Like, they're fine. So who gave a shit?
0: Well, I think, though, the discussion or the moral conundrum which the viewers meant to empathise with is the choice. The execution of that choice isn't as important because, basically, once the choice has been made, then everyone basically has to mourn the loss of who will and won't survive. And then the actual tidal wave coming through and wiping people out is just kind of following through after that choice has been made. Basically, people have to reconcile – with their demons, their relationships, and so on. And there is no need to explore the day after because the film isn't interested in doing that.
1: It's not interested in the day after tomorrow. Okay. (laughs) Two things. One, they could have done a lot more reconciling of demons. I love a good movie about the reconciliation of demons. Not enough of that. The second one is, at least with, say, another disaster movie with exactly the same premise that came out 10, 15 years later or whatever, 2012, they do destroy the earth in that. So, those ideas of who will be allowed to be on the fancy rocket ship or water craft of the future do have weight and meaning. Whereas in this, yeah, I don't know, it seems like a bit of a letdown by the end.
0: Yeah, Interstellar, which has been critically maligned by some people, particularly the last half, also deals with this conundrum as to do you give up the life of family and so on in the short term for the overall objective of saving humanity on a bigger scale in the long term?
1: Yeah. Uh, And the bits that work best in both of these movies and maybe why Armageddon, although it does it with idiot levels of, you know, dumb scale, is the astronaut part. like surely the most emotionally resonant in both movies is the astronaut or roughnecks or whatever sacrificing themselves. Like the best bit in deep impact is you know ron eldard putting his hand to his screen with his baby as the woman like shoves the baby in the camera and they hurtle into the center of the comet or meteorite or whatever it is and then you're like oh that's like noble sacrifice ah they're gonna name schools after them you know (laughs) i think that's the line in the movie but you know
0: so circling back to what you liked about it you liked The opportunities when they actually stuck with the astronauts and treated those moral dilemmas like that particular one where someone sacrifices his family for the sake of humanity. But Armageddon does the same
1: thing. Yeah. With with a coral style. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) And an electric guitar.
0: (laughs) I'll give you a few more smaller details, which don't actually make this a better film in my opinion, but add to it being a bit more mature or progressive than the bombastic execution by Michael Bay of Armageddon. I think it was more progressive in terms of the casting of a black president in Deep Impact. Mm -hmm. That was just something which twenty years ago was ten years ahead of the curve of Obama.
1: Because the president in Armageddon is just a generic white guy, right? Or do you even see him? I I can't even recall him. Yeah, I think he might be
0: shown very briefly when he's given the the opportunity to Ron Rivkin or something. The Godspeed speech, speech. you know? Yeah, sure. So there's that. Here's what I didn't like about Deep Impact. And again, I'm seeing deep impact in the context of 20 years after the fact, on TV, having been put against the very high bar of the Michael Bay, high watermark film. I didn't connect with the characters as much. And I was doing a bit of reading in terms of the Hollywood history of this film. And apparently, the two kids, Elijah Wood and what's her name? Lily Subieski. Yeah. They apparently went to feature much more in the interlinked with the other characters to the point that... Elijah Wood actually was meant to watch the takeoff, the rocket launch from the president's Oval Office. And so basically, all three characters, Leonie, T. Leonie, Morgan Freeman, and Elijah Wood, who all represent different parts of this particular world, which is the president, a reporter, and a child discoverer who found the comet or found the asteroid, come together. And it feels like, apparently, in the test screenings, no one really got on board the teen romance thing at all. So they dramatically cut out all those scenes. So, those oh, right. kids okay. kind of like punctuate the film much less than was originally intended on the screenplay.
1: Yeah, right. Their romance is very, um, I don't know. Like if the world was ending, you're their age, go out there and fuck.
0: Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah.
1: But then that would be weird to watch that in like a PG-13, you know, you know DreamWorks movie, right? Well, here's some uh, movie it's trivia. Like Greg Arakai's Deep Impact. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know that kid who stands up in the scene in the gymnasium? when they're basically congratulating Elijah Wood's character for discovering the comet, and his kid stands up and says, man, you're going to get so much sex. Oh, yeah, yeah. That kid actually ad-libbed that line. And really? all those kids reacting like,
1: woo-woo, it's so rude.
0: Well, actually, that was their genuine reaction.
1: And in the end, Elijah Wood got no sex. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's right.
1: <laughs> they probably shot that scene late. They went, oh, can we could run back and show him getting sex.
0: Actually, basically, Elijah Wood and Legally got a baby without the sex. It's like, They're not pregnant in it, are they? No, but basically mum hands across oh, the yeah. newborn baby. Oh,
1: bad deal. Yeah, what total a, deal. A, you got
0: the dud. He didn't even get to have sex to get the baby. Tragedy. Also, I thought the aesthetic style of Deep Impact was really weak. There was nothing at all defining. And I found out whether this is the reason why or not, that sadly, and this isn't a joke, but it's actually true, is that the DOP actually had leukemia and was critically ill during the shooting of this film, and actually died like, in, whilst it was in post-production. Now, I'm not sure if that's affecting you know, the execution of the, the visual style of the film, but I felt it didn't actually have a editing pace or visual style that was deserving of such a dramatic
1: premise. Mm. Like, we, are, we are putting it up against one of the seminal works of Michelangelo de Bay, though. You know, <laughs> um. but like, like for
0: example, I was watching this film thinking, okay, The rocket's taking off. They're sending five, six astronauts into space to save humanity. And it just felt so prosaically shot, edited slowly. There was no sense of excitement. The score was terrible. Like There was no sense that, oh, my God, this is something that trumps landing a human on the moon by a thousandfold. And the stakes are the highest stakes that can possibly exist, the existence of humanity.
1: Yeah, it's got something of a TV movie quality to it and to be fair talk about michael bay's style his style is like ultra stylish and ultra stupid like i don't want to just sound like oh yeah michael bay is some sort of he's like it's like a visual genius moron like well yeah
0: well basically michael bay to me is like i love his films as a guilty pleasure but also i think he is legitimately a very talented visual stylist but i do sometimes feel that it's like a kid going to the uh buffet the ice cream bar at, say, Sizzler and going, I'm going to put on this and put on that and put on this. So if you'd accuse Bay of anything, it's perhaps pulling out every trick in the book for every dramatic scene. Oh, totally. There's there's,
1: there's, there's, there's shots where you think, oh, this was probably a great shot, but he can't even hold on it for more than a second and a half. And you sort of think, oh, I wonder what that shot would have looked like if he actually committed to Playing the whole thing out instead of just manically cutting between a whole variety of different sized close ups as well. You know, it's like, yeah, it's like some kid mushing the keyboards, just with some sort of ADHD fueled, you know, mania between these kind of very nicely lit and stylized shots. But there's there's sort of no discipline to maybe the editing or something for his movie. I don't know. It's just, I think it's why he uses
0: music to so cohesively take all those disparate shots and bring them together that it forms a great montage, but to watch those sequences without music, without score, they do feel dramatically different and can feel quite disjointed, but I think what he's a master at is the overall tone of a scene.
1: Probably not a single scene in Armageddon that doesn't have a piece of music over it, and there's probably not a single scene in Armageddon that that piece of music isn't some ridiculous electric guitar or choral choir or 50,000-piece band or Aerosmith or something. Like there's a few bits in Deep Impact that are quite nicely performed and Mimi Leader, the director, kind of just lets them sit in that moment. When the when the astronauts decide that they have to fly their little space shuttle into the comet. Yeah, she lets these kind of quite nice moments play out. There's no way Michael Bay could ever hang on one of those sorts of close-ups. You know, he would play it for one second and then score and the dramatic cut.
0: He'd have the uh, glycerine tear coming down slow motion down the cheek. He'd push in on a dolly shot right into the eyeballs of the characters. They'd blink really hard. He'd zoom in perhaps on them swallowing, their lips pursed, their jaws clenched. She sat on, I guess, a more restrained shot at that scene, which was a moral conundrum. However, I've got to say, it was also lit really flatly, that shot. Oh, yeah, totally. It just looked like TV. And I I don't buy the excuse, oh, well, they were filming in space and they had more restrictions. I mean, and that's in they weren't floating or anything. So it wasn't like that wasn't shot on a set. Like- could have been lit so much more interestingly. I mean, Michael Bay would do something where he would actually like have the characters' faces illuminated by the cockpit lights.
1: Oh, but he'd have the characters' faces illuminated by lights that clearly don't even exist That's in any yeah, reality. Yeah. Like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think he gives a shit about naturalistic light sources or production design that makes any kind of coherent sense. I think he's just interested in like being a visual stylist, you know, and script or logic kind of be damned. And I mean, you were saying before you're a huge Michael Bay fan. I'm a reasonable. Size so Michael Bay fan. The Transformers movies, those for me, are uh, the absolute nadir of Michael Bay's absolute incoherence. They're everything wrong with Michael Bay. Yeah, yeah. Whereas Armageddon or The Rock or Bad Boys 2, fuck yeah, <laughs> um, are kind of what I go to a Michael Bay movie for.
0: What's the most rewatchable scene that makes the most of this concept about a comet coming to Earth and destroying Earth?
1: The most rewatchable scene in Deep Impact. Before I rewatched it, the only scene I could actually remember from the movie when if someone said, "Hey, Gabe, what's a scene from Deep Impact do you remember?" It was that scene where Taeyloni and um who's it? Not F Murray, not Maxim- Maximilian Shell, Maximilian Shell playing her dad, her estranged father, stand on the beach and get wiped out by the big wave. And I kind of always remembered it as a bit dumb and funny. Like where is everyone else? <laughs> and you know, I guess there's a way to go, that's a pretty good one. And then right before she she's like Daddy. <laughs> and then, <sh-push>! Right.
0: <laughs> yeah. Daddy. It, it's funny, isn't it, that in a film which has a concept about a comet hitting Earth and wiping out all of humanity, there are so few scenes that jump out as being really dependent on that premise. So, for example, I can't think of any visual shot or scene from the moment the space shuttle takes off until the space shuttle essentially, you know, like kamikaze style, with the nukes on board, blows up the comet. None of those shots or scenes to me are memorable in any way. To me, the most memorable scene is probably that same scene you're talking about where you see that huge wave come in and take down New York City. Oh, yep. And a bit like when we first saw the scene where the White House is blown up in Independence Day, it was that kind of awe-inspiring visual of something as huge as the Statue of Liberty and the Twin Towers this is obviously pre-2001, these highest points of New York City just being basically dwarfed by this massive wave. It was kind of shades of Roland Emmerich, but interestingly, it was actually the consequence of the comet. It wasn't actually a point where the comet landed hitting Earth or any kind of visual shot like you'd seen in a Michael Bay film where you see like the Arc de Triomphe destroyed oh, or well, I mean, anything like that.
1: Michael Bay loves himself some disaster porn. I mean, Paris being... Destroyed is entirely pointless, really, in Armageddon, except that he just wanted to fire a fucking meteorite at Paris and have some just giant shot of it being wiped out while a bunch of like overly art-directed people playing Frenchmen stood on a street corner. (laughs) You know, they could have cut that whole sequence. Like, no, we're gonna we'll just lob one at Paris. Why not? Fuck. (laughs) Totally. So
0: tell me, in terms of missed opportunities, what could the filmmakers have done better with the central concept that both of these movies share in deep impact?
1: I guess I've already talked about that thing of the, the seed, not seed bank, the arcs of life or whatever. I can't even remember what they're called in the- An arc they, for they, humans. They're going to hide in the Appalachians or something, Yeah, whatever yeah. it is. I don't know. That, that to me felt like it didn't pay off really at all in Deep Impact. The whole kid thing, again, that whole Elijah Wood thing, I couldn't remember anything about that except that he found the- There's that really convoluted bit at the beginning where one astronomer finds it, and then the government thinks he and the astronomer died, and then they name it after both of them, and then they find out he's alive. And it's just like, this could have been simpler. I don't know. Why didn't he just find it with his little schoolyard telescope?
0: Which is precisely what happens in Armageddon. Oh, there's, yeah. There's so, this, yeah, that's right. There's that kind of really cranky obese guy in the backyard <laughs> who unbelievably, like it seems a total stretch, this single guy who's a you know drunken home astronomer finds it, and then the Michael Bay quip later on, as I recall, is he makes some sort of remark that I named it after my wife and essentially who is really bitchy and naggy. And then the comment has a name like Destroyer or something like that.
1: Yeah, whatever it's called. He names it after his wife because she's some soul-destroying thing that's forced of joy out of life. Them. Some classic bit of Michael Bay misogyny, you know, just, ah, hey, why not? Let's do it.
0: That scene is a total Michael Bay combination misogyny, Americana, because I think the flag's flying in the background oh, when he no spots doubt. it. It's Midwest, so he loves his uh, vistas of people in what some people derogatively call the flyover states, like not on the um, liberal east or west coast of the states, but in the middle, in the heartland of America. We we
1: introduce Harry Stamper hitting golf balls at Greenpeace. I think the film pretty clearly positions itself, you know, like about what, what these characters are, you know. It's Trump voters who are going to save the day.
0: Matt, we sold to get to Armageddon. Let's just punch here past Sorry. Big Impact and uh, put a bow on this bad boy for this one. Tell me, was this film a career high for anyone? Who came out top, be it a lead actor, a supporting actor, a director, a producer?
1: Mimi Leder went on to direct some pretty phenomenal TV, right? Luck and Leftovers, Shameless. So, I mean, this is a lot of ER. This is not her kind of cinematic high point.
0: I think uh, you're right. I think she did the best out of all these films. Like, I wouldn't call this film a career high for Morgan Freeman. No, no. I wouldn't call this a career high for Tia Leone. I wouldn't call. What it a- was the career high for T. Leone? Well, that's the problem. Well, I'd say fun was with Dick and Jane. Maybe Madame Secretary. on TV. Oh, yeah, sure. It's not a career high for Elijah Wood. Obviously, Law of the Rings is arguably that.
1: Ah, uh, you know who it was a career high for? Do Gray Scott. <laughs>
0: So, Dougrace Scott, who has had this career of missed opportunities, including Wolverine, I'm pretty sure, and correct me if I'm wrong, he doesn't actually have a single line of dialogue.
1: Yeah, uh, there's one bit where he's like, he like waves to her from a helicopter or something. Maybe he says, bye bye. See, I, I actually remember. don't think
0: he says anything. There's a scene where she kind of like signals with a hand gesture of him to film on the video camera, and there's a scene where he gives her a look but I actually can't recall him saying anything in the entire film.
1: His character has a surname in the credits. You don't give a character with no dialogue a surname.
0: Well, I suspect he probably had more lines and a bigger role in the shoot, uh, but they edited his role down. do Dougray. Maybe he was potentially a love interest. You know, the whole idea of what's well, coming to an end, she turns to her reliable cameraman, they share a moment, uh, yeah. and perhaps they excise that to focus on the mother-daughter relationship. Right. Okay, so conversely- did this film ruin the career of anyone?
1: No, no. I think, you know, everyone- I mean, was Mimi Leder put in, like, uh, director jail after this? Kind of unfairly or something? You know, was she I, sidelined I, for a few years? I couldn't find anything
0: from- on that myself in terms of- uh, Oh, no, she
1: did pay it forward. Oh, yeah, okay. Like a year or two later. Okay. And that film- rightfully probably put her in jail Yeah. fuck, what yeah. a turkey. Yeah, yeah. I don't think she was right to have the coals for She wasn't party. rightfully put in jail. I don't actually mean that. She should obviously- You mean to be- jail? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah no, yeah, yeah. yes. No, she was sent to actual jail she to, was sent pay to it forward. She was
0: one time Yeah, that's right. Which Hollywood was sponsoring no. in the early days. I would argue that T. Leone didn't make the most of the opportunity. This was basically, from recollection, her biggest Hollywood movie break. She had a smaller role in Bad Boys in 95, but I wouldn't say that she made the most of this opportunity. Like, plenty of people are in bad films that are mass-marketed and do pretty well at the box office. And this film did pretty well at the box office. Not as well as Armageddon, but pretty well. And I don't think she really kicked on and took advantage of this. I mean, this is a lead role. I don't think she was very good in this film.
1: Jurassic Park 3. She went on to do and Jurassic Park 3.
0: Okay. So, that was two years later or so. Yeah. Three. That Sp- makes Spanglish. sense. That was also executive produced by Spielberg. I just don't think that she really kicked on as one would expect. Now, she also, in her private life, got married to David Jacolfini, had a family that probably contributed to her reorientating her priorities. But I don't think she took advantage of this role. Now, I guess she was on a sitcom first. If you want to choose analogy, Helen Hunt was on a sitcom and started a similar disaster film around the same time, which was Twister and she didn't really kick on to a film career either. She was in Something's got to give, I think. Wasn't she? She With- won an Oscar for that. Yeah, but after that, nothing for ages. Like basically she sort of vanished and then came back years no, later. No, as good as it gets. Something's got to give is
1: another movie. Yeah, you're right. As good as it gets. Something gets something. Yeah. <laughs> um all right. Yeah, wait, just before we go, on, you know who I enjoyed seeing in this movie? Ron Eldard. Just wanna Oh, okay. Just wanna, well, just wanna throw, no, This is Ron perfect. Ron Eldard. You brought me
0: to a, a new segment we'll call the uh Hey, it's that guy award. So who's that recognizable face that has a small role in Deep Impact but went on to have a bigger career?
1: John Favreau. Oh, totally John Favreau. Do you think him and Ron were sitting on the set of Deep Impact just talking about maybe maybe their plans for the next year or two, you know, what are they dreaming about? You know? Oh. Where are you gonna be in ten years, uh, John Favreau? And Ron's thinking to himself, maybe we'll be in the same place. Maybe we'll do another movie together. Shit.
0: John Favreau and Ben Affleck both went to the same school of let's make an indie film in the uh, mid to late 90s. Favreau was in the critically acclaimed and cult favourite Swingers. And only like one and a half years after that was released, he gets his his Hollywood break in this film. So I would say of all the actors in the film, he took advantage of this opportunity the most. Like he actually went, okay, I'm going to try and cash in my heat right now and try and get a Hollywood career going, which he did before he became the director of Iron Man, one of the most bankable Hollywood directors. He was definitely taking advantage of, you know, his acting opportunities with this film. So moving along to the best character name in this film, tell me who has the best character name of anyone?
1: I mean, Deep Impact plays it pretty straight, except for, I guess, Robert De Spurgeon Spurgeon and do you think they called him Spurgeon because that's like an old-timey name? Like, they were like, here's a guy who was flying shovels in the Dust Bowl in 1930s. What's a 1930s? A like, he could be Spurgeon, you know? Yeah,
0: totally. I think it's that. And it's also, it also sounds like the word sturgeon, which makes me sound like- an, But like, he's a, a fish? An authoritative, mature fish. Okay, yeah. You know, like, he's a wet fish. He's um, right. a determined fish. Do uh, you
1: feel that Bruce Joel Rubin and Michael Tolkien talked that out and said, we got to think of a determined wet fish? Oh, Spurgeon, Sturgeon, Spurgeon. Yeah, we'll do that. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Not like Marlon Tanner, if he was a man on a mission or something.
0: Well, you should actually give this uh, Best Character Name Award an official title. So you're a huge fan of uh, crazy character names in movies. Give me your uh, top movie character names, which is just kind of
1: outrageous and crazy,
0: and that can be the new name of our Best Character Name Award. What Uh are your favourites?
1: Well, I mean, we were just talking about this before, so – the ones off the top of my head that you could just never go past is obviously Cole Trickle, Tom Cruise's character in Days of Thunder. Gold. Cole Trickle. That's probably the one that a lot of people think of. The other one I was talking about, what were are we talking about? Uh, Memphis Reigns. It's Rain From um, Gone in 60 Seconds. That's great. That's great. I like you that know.
0: one. Should we call this the uh, Memphis Reigns Award?
1: But stupid character names these days probably kind of got out the window because Harry Potter- Every character in that has a dumb name. They're all called, like, Tonkberry or Zibble Zabble or, I don't know, some thing. So, I don't know. Like, maybe it's when you try and play a movie straight and you have a character called Coltrickle. whereas we all agree in a Harry Potter movie some character named, like, Severus Snape. I don't know. Well,
0: there was that trend in the 90s when, for simplicity to try and convey the personality of a character, the screenwriters chose nouns or verbs that were really on the nose. So we'll get to Armageddon, but Bruce Willis's name Harry Stamper. I mean, the name Stamper. He's determined. He's stubborn. He gets his way. He stamps his feet. Harry Stamper. So I think it's very much a product of the nineties.
1: I'm there for a dumb character name. I think movies are always great when you just really you go for it with character names. I'm, I'm not there for a movie called like where your main character is called like John Brown or you know Harry Shearer. That's a ridiculous name for a human. Who cares? You know, just go all Chance Boudreau or something. You know,
0: which person in the world would possibly be actually named Harry Shearer? Yeah, for know. example.
1: All right, Marion Cabretti. While we're at it, as well. Oh, nice Cobra. name. That's, all right. That's great.
0: I think Memphis Reigns is the winner for now. All right, but there is scope in the future to switch that out for an even better one. Dicky Greenleaf. <laughs> that's great. Which one's that from? Mr. Ripley, the talented Mr. Ripley. Oh, nice. Dick- Very nice. Give me your best quote of Deep Impact. Is there
1: quotable lines in...
0: Uh, Look, it's not as quotable as the joy of some of those lines in Armageddon. There's one I actually heard which seemed to really resonate in 2019 when the press are under attack. And it's from this character, I think he's an FBI character played by James Cromwell. And he says to T. character, quote, I know you're just a reporter, but used to be a person, right? Which sounds like that classic gag you'd make about lawyers being unhuman. There's actually a line in, I think it's Del Toro's Blade 2, uh, where yeah. the lawyer makes a joke like, I'm a lawyer, same thing. Oh, uh, you're a line.
1: vampire. No, actually, I'm a lawyer or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah.
0: slightly worse. Yeah, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. So great. same, yeah. Um, but there aren't as many great quotes. That was my favourite though. So nothing comes to mind? It's not a quotable film?
1: Not in the same way that Armageddon really leans into just funny, dumb lines. And again, I guess it's just about the tone they went for in Deep Impact. Apart from the the one you just mentioned, they try and play it all across the board straight. I think I read somewhere that they even had science advisors on their film.
0: Yeah, and they even cast real astronomers and NASA scientists Why would you bother? in background roles. I know, I know. You know. so everyone sleeps better at night.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay,
0: which brings us to- the next twin movie, Armageddon, and I think we'll both be a little bit more animated about this one. So, Gabe, do you like Armageddon? And if so, what do you like about it, which you haven't mentioned already?
1: Yes, I like Armageddon. I bought the Criterion edition of Armageddon in 1999. I'm a film connoisseur, and if Criterion puts a movie out, you know I'll buy it, and it sits there very nicely on my shelf next to, you know, Un or something like that. And rightly so. It's a a seminal work by an important filmmaker. Important uh, or uh, no, influential? File, well, maybe it's You'd file it in the canon of incredibly stupid movies. <laughs> it's just scene after scene. It's just, just a lot of dumb shit on screen and very enjoyably so. It's certainly not boring. Yeah,
0: it's certainly not boring. I think it knows exactly what it is and it's the best version of that. To me, Armageddon is the type of film that doesn't apologise for its nonsense but its cohesive nonsense. So, for me, for example, I acknowledge it's not as mature, it's not as much based in fact as Deep Impact, but knows what it is, and I think it really leans into its premise. And to me, the biggest distinction it makes with the same sort of concept about a deadly asteroid coming to Earth is it takes this whole fish out of water idea and really amps it up. So, if Deep Impact was really about the idea of can these cerebral, well-trained, experts like scientists, astronauts, save the world. Michael Bay, who does have right-wing tendencies and would argue sometimes is anti-intellectual the way that he satirises intellectuals in his films, basically takes the idea of taking a group of working-class expert miners who have no expertise in space travel and actually makes them astronauts. And the best thing about this film is this fantastic commentary by Ben Affleck on the DVD. Do you recall this comment he made?
1: I recall it did the rounds a little while ago and everyone was like, ha, oh, ha, oh, ha, oh, ha, oh, yes, it's a very good point. What was it?
0: Something like he said to Michael Bay in the shoot, hey, wouldn't no, it?" it's be- on the
1: commentary. It's on the commentary track of the DVD, right? Or do they talk about it on the commentary about the shoot? I one think Ben one.
0: Affleck reminisces that when he was on the set in the commentary, he reminisces that when he was on the set. And he had a quiet moment with Michael Bay and he asked the question, this doesn't make sense. Wouldn't it it be easier to train astronauts to have some of the same skills as these deep-sea drillers than to train deep-sea drillers to be astronauts? And Michael Bay apparently got really shitty with him and just said, shut up, it's a movie, stormed away.
1: I'm sure they also address this in the movie or at least write some scene that at least acknowledges this when they're like, Bruce Willis turns up and he's like, "Oh, you made my drill all wrong. You dorks who put this thing together. Aren't you guys NASA? Like you can't even make a drill right."
0: Yeah, I'd call that that classic de screenwriting terminology um, put it like la- the hang a lantern. Yeah. Where as I recall in that scene, and I can't recall the exact words, but he says exactly that like you can not you screwed the drill head in incorrectly.
1: Yeah, you keep yeah. breaking the piston pumps yeah. or something.
0: He basically says to them, "You might be book smarts, but you're not street smarts."
1: Yeah, eggheads. But also they do send a whole bunch of astronauts with them anyway. The guys who are piloting the shuttles are astronauts. So it does make sense to send the drillers as passengers to drill. I mean, all they've got to do is put on spacesuits. That's putting on one foot after the other. Maybe it's not that hard to be an astronaut. Maybe the brouhaha around, oh, Bern Affleck said this about Michael Bay, is fucking dumb and immaterial because Colonel Willie Sharp accompanies them.
0: I think, and, you that, know. I think that joke made the rounds because of Michael Bay's reaction, just saying, just a movie, shut up. Whereas Michael Bay should have just said, no, they're going up as passengers with the astronauts who are flying the plane, landing the plane, yeah. dealing with all the instruments, doing everything else. Certainly all they're doing meal, is you know. basically getting their suits, walking onto the rock and drilling. Yeah. So I think it was more like Michael Bay's anti-intellectual response to the question rather than a I consider Michael Bay
1: hadn't even thought through his own movie. Is that who who would have thunk it? Right. Okay. You should read that script, Michael Bay. The answers are right there. Here is what I liked about the film. I think it's the best version of
0: Michael Bay in terms of editing, visual style, sense of humor, pacing, story for a Michael Bay film. I love how he's demonstrated through every film he's made that he basically wants to ride the coattails of an indie director. He'll never be the Cohen brothers, and basically take all the good work in discovering and shaping great indie actors like Tim Blake Nelson, Francis O'Dorman, Steve Paschimi, John Totoro, and then casting them in all of his films to basically try and, I guess, get safe bankable actors and feel somehow that he's perhaps tipping his hat back to indie roots he never actually had.
1: Yeah. So, in this one, we've got... Steve Bashimi. Uh, Steve Bashimi, Peter Stamare. The blonde guy with the nose. Stamare. No. The I, Russian. Owen Wilson. Owen Wilson. Was Owen, what Coen Brothers movie was Owen Wilson in? It wasn't a Coen Brothers film, but he was in an indie Right, it's indie. Or the uh, rocket. I mean, Billy Bob Thornton, who was in that black and white Coen Brothers movie. About, and the uh, Starblade. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, he does cast them well. I mean, Armageddon has a pretty phenomenal cast. And that's one of the great oh, ben, things about- Oh, Ben Affleck too. He was in- Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he made Ben Affleck get new fake teeth. Yeah, that's right. But, I mean, one of the fun things about this movie, I guess, is every scene it's like, oh, check it out. Jason Isaacs rolled in as the, the smartest guy in the room to deliver some ham-fisted metaphor about, you know, it's like blowing air into a balloon or whatever it is in this movie. No, it's like holding a, it's like holding a, a bunch of firecrackers in your hand and it's going to blow your hand off. You have to go to MIT for that
0: shit. It's Michael Bay's version of treat me like I'm a five-year-old. Explain it to me. Keep it simple. What don't you like about Armageddon?
1: Like I said before, I wish they would just relax a little bit in some of the sequences. I feel there is some really, really nice shots that it probably took the crew a lot of time to shoot and do. And they just kind of race through them and just cut through them. And it might have been nice to play a few of those things out. I mean, it's corny as hell. I don't know if that's something I dislike about the movie because I think when you watch this movie, you're getting what you're paying for. I think I don't think this movie pretends to be anything that it isn't. You know, so I don't know. I I don't think it's Michael Bay's. But do you think this is Michael Bay's best movie?
0: I think it'd be definitely the top three. I like it more than Bad Boys. Talk me briefly through the Michael Bay filmography.
1: I mean, Bad Boys, The Rock. Is it better than The Rock?
0: Oh, that's a tough one.
1: I mean, The Rock is incredibly restrained compared to this. Yeah,
0: I think I prefer The Rock.
1: Yeah, Um, I think The Rock, it's fair to say The Rock is probably Michael Bay's best movie.
0: Yeah, I I prefer some of the visuals of The Rock. Like, for example, you know, the classic Nick Cage on his knees with the uh, fireworks in his hand. very yeah, yeah, the the, the, the flares. I love how he liberally uses slow motion to depict those rolling green glass balls, which have the, like, that's just perfect eye candy some great shots where the Marines kind of come out of the water, which he reuses Ooh. in Bad Boys in slow motion as basically the surface of the water breaks.
1: I think it's fair to say he reuses kind of- a lot of his shots.
0: Totally. And the same colour palette as well. You know, his tangerine yeah. and teal.
1: Oh, yeah. He probably has a lookbook when he goes and talks about a movie. He's just, it's just shots from Michael Bay movies. Totally. It's like, totally. Yes, here's my here's my pitch book. Here's my sizzle reel. Yeah, yeah. Michael, I mean, these are all your things. Fuck yeah, that's what you hired me for.
0: White kids running slowly past a slow wavering american flag near a barn with like cornfields in the background is a classic michael bay shot
1: i mean maybe that's something i don't like about it sometimes i think michael bay lays it on so thick in terms of the kind of art direction or making it feel like a commercial it's like oh you need to do a movie uh you have a sequence and it needs to be set in italy okay well we need vespers and it needs to be at a Uh, And at a cafe, and or you know, just signposting these things so heavily, you know, maybe we'd get that it's in Paris without needing some guy in a beret with a moustache and a and a baguette. You know, like, dude, I get it. Like, at
0: least so in those instances, he actually does depict other parts of the world for a storyline about the end of humanity on Earth.
1: But they're listening to radios in English.
0: (laughs) Yeah, totally. Oh, that's right. Like,
1: like, that doesn't make sense.
0: That's when they basically cut to the second unit shots. Yeah, yeah. Which the are great. Yeah. Which are great. And they're the most cliche depictions. But basically, Michael Bay's apocalyptic stories are always through the lens of America and often the American army or navy or military of some sort. This film happens to be about through the gaze of NASA and people who are kind of critiquing that, the, the stodgy, eggheaded part of NASA, but celebrating the military-style aspects of NASA.
1: Yeah, like he loves himself some hardware, doesn't he? So that, rockets.
0: So the space shuttles, for example, that are coated in some Wolverine-type material like adamantium or titanium. I mean, I love that. So that, that to me a great visual where he said, I'll take something iconic and as recognisable as the space shuttle, but I'll give it, I'll modify it like he modifies a car in Transformers. I'll basically put on the equivalent of mags and a spoiler. I'll cover it in this cool silver, change the aesthetic slightly, and it's going to be a hotted-up version of something a bit pedestrian. This is the sports car version to the Toyota Camry of space shuttles. It's
1: fair to say he does that in every scene. He looks at a scene and goes, oh, well, here's some characters who are being interviewed by a psychologist. What's the sports car version of a psychologist's office? Oh, I don't know. It's got all these pointy things sticking off the wall and some woman who, like she's from some, you know, Jean-Pierre Jeunet film, wandering around in the background with some weird cylindrical attachment on her head oh yeah yeah we sports cars the shit out of that fucking psychiatrist's office that doesn't make any sense
0: yeah and that's a bit isn't it this is the part where i guess for a mass audience he's basically taking the cliches about every character or their job or a country or a city or a community and just amplifying it to 11 to try in his way very succinctly and cleanly depict who these people are, but also to, to definitely satirize them or demean them, like particularly intellectuals like a psychologist, for example.
1: It's funny you say uh, he takes it to 11. He is almost a human embodiment of that scene. And if you said to Michael Bay, why wouldn't you just make it go to 10 and that would be the same loudness? He would just not understand that. It has to be dialed up to such a ridiculous degree and you know the strip club they go to is in some kind of like it's like in i don't even know how to describe the building it's in some sort of like the pantheon or something
0: it's a cathedral it looks about like it's 12 stories of ceiling high inside it is phenomenal like somehow that is within a short drive of nasa's launch facility in florida
1: yeah wherever nasa's launch facility is or houston no Uh, florida yeah yeah you know the story logic There's a Terrible story logic bits. Someone's mentioned it. I'm sure someone's mentioned this before online, but, you know, like Bruce Willis fires Ben Affleck and a day later NASA turns up, or that same afternoon. Then Bruce goes to find Ben and Ben Affleck has somehow in one day set up his own little oil rigging outfit in the middle of like the Texan oil fields. It looks like it's been there for about 45 years and he's there by himself. I say, when did he get the time to do – Michael Bay doesn't give a shit about that kind of thing. When I probably first watched it, I probably didn't give a shit either. You know what? I hadn't even
0: realized how illogical that was until just now. Like, you're right though. It's it's crazy. Even if he'd bought the farm, somehow when did it, he buy it? Exactly. How did he do that? And he's just like one guy, like running this entire yeah. thing by himself.
1: Maybe oil rigging's real easy. Crazy, or maybe Ben Affleck's just the second best.
0: <laughs> so tell me, if Bay, you know, works at ten or eleven on all these types of scenes, tell me. For you, what's the most rewatchable scene that makes the most of this concept about a comet hitting Earth and threatening to wipe out humanity? In terms of either visuals or the theme,
1: what's the bet? what's the best scene or sequence in Armageddon? I don't know. I'm pretty partial to um, Steve Buscemi getting like the probably totally made up like sp- I don't know what do they call? Let's get some word for it, like space dementia or. You know the
0: yeah space dementia. I think
1: it, yeah. he's got space dementia. You know, which has got that great sight gag where they cut to him and he's been tied up. You know, <laughs> he's just like gaffer taped up somewhere. Oh, we got front row tickets. To it's the end pretty of the much world. like a, a Wildy Cody ah, picture. It's, it's crazy. It's but I mean, I think the movie even knows it's that because at one point Steve Buscemi's character refers to their plan as the wily coyote of you yeah, know strapping uh, telemetry or something. Yeah, it's, that. That. It,
0: it's like strapping a Cody to a rocket and go into space. Yeah, yeah. That's his game.
1: Yeah. yeah. And I don't think the movie needs to dwell on, you know, how are they get – is it this movie where they're going to slingshot around the moon or is that some other – maybe that's a Christopher Nolan movie. No, that's movie, Armageddon. You know.
0: See, yeah, that's Armageddon.
1: Oh, it is. But then, really, does it seem that, like, much more dumb in the end than encountering fourth-dimensional beings behind a bookshelf? Like, oh, for all, you're taking yourself real seriously. It's like, oh, that's kind of stupid too. See, what I like about –
0: To me, the most, uh, I guess, rewatchable scene that takes the most of this concept and, you know, really embraces it is when they go to land on the comet. So, they sling themselves around the moon and come to land behind it. And what they do is so unrealistic, but it works entirely for the movie, which is this growling, animalistic sound that the comet makes. Oh, that's cool. So, whenever they cut to it, it's this incredible sound. Like, it sounds really spooky. Now, first of all, obviously, no one can hear anything in space. But even if they could, there's no way that comet's making any noise other than whoosh, right? It's really heightened. It's so crazy and ridiculous, but in the film with the kind of greenish-blue hues and all those shark jagged edges and stuff, it works entirely and basically makes that comet or that asteroid a character.
1: Sort of anthropomorphizes this comet in a way that's so scary. Yeah. so scary. Yeah. Yeah, it does a kind of great job of that where it just it just keeps piling problems on for these astronauts. Yeah, the drill bits keep breaking because they landed on the bit with too much metal in the ground or something. The comets are actually – is rotated on its axis, so they're not going to be able to – it just piles this shit on.
0: See, that's the part where I didn't enjoy deep impact as much because essentially they land incredibly easily and then they spend, what, like literally two minutes digging a hole and that's it. Whereas basically Armageddon goes, okay, just – for our audience at home, even if it is easy to land on a comet, and I actually did some reading in my Hollywood Shallow Dive that apparently in real life they could have actually landed the planes, the space shuttles, basically on the front of the comet easily. But why, why would you want to land on the front of the comet? Well, it's easier. It's actually. So it's easier to land there? It's easier and safer than being behind it. Like if you, you know, all the rocks and debris coming off the back, uh, yeah. it's more dangerous to land behind it. But I think, in terms of Hollywood screenwriting, if you said to the average layperson, if something's flying through space at, you know, a thousand kilometers per hour, would you believe a space shuttle trying to land on the front of it, which is like trying to land basically a mosquito on the front of a semi trailer 100 kilometers an hour? You just go, no.
1: That doesn't make any sense. Even to though me.
0: it's actually logical scientifically in space, to a layperson, it's illogical. So they both try and land behind. But I thought Armageddon really leaned into the idea that this thing would look like something out of that scene with the Millennium Falcon in Star Wars, where it's like asteroids everywhere and you're dodging and weaving. And then when you try and land, it's like landing on Antarctica meets the Grand Canyon. And so it's a nightmare to land. What do you land? It's all spiky. To me, it just really embraced what a layperson would think of that task. So even if Deep Impact was more scientifically accurate, it's so unexplored and unbelievable, it seems silly in the movie, whereas Armageddon kind of goes, you know what, this is how people would think it would be. It'd be hell dangerous. It'd be like trying to land the mosquito on the back of the semi-trailer, which is hard, not as hard as landing in the front, and then every possible obstacle could then arise from a traditional raising of stakes in a screenplay to make it worse and worse and worse and worse. Mm.
1: I mean, neither of these films are attempting to do, like, what a hard Mm. sci-fi. So, for me, it's like, well, if you're- if you're not doing like the Shane Carruth version of blowing a asteroid out of space, Shane well,
0: Carruth, he who did uh, the low budget indie film Primer, yeah, which is yeah, a low budget the, execution the, of time the, travel,
1: the greatest hard sci-fi film of all time, hard sci-fi, well, elevated not, genre. Why not just? Why not just make your asteroid all spiky? Even though that's not realistic yeah. at all, like yeah. it's just more dangerous. Yeah. Why not instill it with growls
0: and? Yeah. You know what's worse than a baseball bat? As if you've seen The Walking Dead, a baseball bat with nails uh, or yep. bar wire.
1: Yeah, but by that rationale, wouldn't you want like a sledgehammer with uh, grenades attached to it?
0: Uh, that'll be Armageddon too. Oh, yeah. So tell me, uh, missed opportunities. What could the filmmakers, Michael Bay, have done better with the central concept that he didn't lean into? I don't know
1: if it's something Michael Bay could have done better with the central concept, but I think Michael Bay has no conception, tone. Like I don't think Michael Bay thinks like a normal – person like when the second space shuttle gets smashed by the little meteorites and Owen Wilson dies and really a couple of generic astronauts die you know you're like oh they died is Ben Affleck gonna die but then he just plays for laughs one of those guys just getting smacked into the windscreen of uh, Bruce Willis's shuttle and it's like uh yeah that is this the best time for a joke about one of these dudes just getting like see I didn't interpret it as
0: a joke but I thought the execution of the shot was comedic. So the way he's kind of picked it like this ragdoll doll yeah. being thrown, it just seemed a little bit kind of dehumanised. Yeah.
1: But then I guess everyone loved the Titanic guy hitting the propeller in Titanic. Everyone you know, loves that guy. Boom. Yeah. So maybe maybe he was just going for that. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But, yeah, in all of his movies there's kind of this underlying thing where you never really get a sense that Michael Bay understands a single normal human emotion. Yeah. I, I guess this suffers a little from, from that.
0: See, I I think and maybe it's too stretch, not related enough to the central concept that both these movies share. But in relation to the Harry Stamper character, I didn't think it was necessary to go as hard as him being so right wing and anti intellectual to deride NASA and to start with, you know, that characterizing shot of off balls at Greenpeace. I think you'd have dialed that down twenty percent and made his character slightly more nuanced, like. It's such a cliche the way they have that character be the overprotective father who sees his young woman who's clearly, you know, what in her twenties and curvy with a life and a physique and romantic inclinations deserving of a woman, but he treats her like a 10 year old. It's just seems so old fashioned. Even in 98, that seems like a really old fashioned concept. Without that, where's his arc?
1: How will he, how will he ever
0: be able to let Ben Affleck become her new dad? Of course, uh, yeah.
1: Um, at the end of the film.
0: Yeah, and even the, even the fact that's the point, isn't it? That rather than being a lover or a partner or a friend or an equal, essentially Ben Affleck's positioned as being the new dad because, yeah. of course, women like Liv Tyler need to have father figures to control them. That's right. Okay, tell me then, this film was definitely a career high for some people.
1: Who came out on top? This did pretty well at the box office, right? This was pretty successful, right? Like, oh, I'll get to that. It, it did better than Deep Impact. Right, Okay. So I'd say a lot of people came out on on top in this, right? Like Michael Clark Duncan, he has a couple of scene stealing moments.
0: Yeah, I thought he was great. I thought he made the most of the opportunity. I mean, I recall his character's name Bear, and when you re- can recall a supporting character, one of say ten supporting characters, that clearly that's always a good sign. So I would say he definitely took advantage of his opportunity.
1: Peter Stamare.
0: I'm giving the award to
1: Ben Affleck.
0: I think to go from what uh Mallrats- Chasing Amy and Goodwill Hunting to launch into the Hollywood career that he had strategically positioned himself for, I think this was like the perfect thing, right? It's a great vehicle. It's a box office success. It's with a box office titan like Michael Bay. It's a lead role, but he has to share it with a really reputable actor at the time.
1: I mean, this was definitely the best of Ben Affleck's first foray into yeah. Hollywood leading man, right? Like- yeah. I mean, Armageddon is certainly a shit ton better than Reindeer Games or Bounce or Pearl Harbor or Changing Lanes. The some of, Sum some of All Fears is actually not bad nowadays. You've watched that nowadays. Yeah, It's, yeah. it's not bad. Daredevil, Jiggly, Giggly, Eagily. Jiggly. Giggly. Jiggly, Giggly. Gobble, gobble.
0: See, I actually don't think that anyone would criticise Ben Affleck's performance in Armageddon. They criticise other parts of the film, like it being bombastic or sexist or misogynistic <laughs> or whatever, but they wouldn't criticise Affleck as being the weakest link. I think- for the role that he had and the material he had and the lines that he had, he made the best of it. And I think in some ways, I actually think he did pretty well given the limited role to actually make it emotional. Like particularly that part of the end where Bruce Willis's character, Harry Stamper,
1: sacrifices himself and,
0: you know, Benny Boy gets a little bit teared
1: up. I felt that was an emotionally resonant, well-earned moment, <laughs> you know.
0: As a sociopath, Gabe, did you actually Genuinely feel that or did you feel that you should have felt something? I I didn't. I looked around
1: the audience and saw that other people were crying and emulated their emotions. You recognised it. But let me tell you, listener, it brought the house down. (laughs) Okay. Michael
0: Bay, I think that obviously helped his career to kick along to a higher level. It helped push Steve Buscemi further into mainstream films, I think, after Con Air. Oh, yeah. Who made the most of the opportunity in furthering their career with this film? who basically, a bit like the space shuttle slingshotting itself around the moon, who took this film and slung slung themselves, slingshotted themselves to a bigger and better opportunity. I'd be
1: saying Ben Affleck. Definitely, definitely Ben Affleck because this this was on the downswing of Bruce Willis as a kind of – although it's pretty good, the films that, you know, Bruno did after this, certainly not – I mean, actually, that's not true because he did The Sixth Sense after this, but Whole Nine Yards – uh, maybe, maybe this was not such bad Bruce Willis. Maybe he still had a couple of years to go before, you know, he hit-
0: um, He's straight-to-DVD, straight to, straight to Thor or
1: something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but I mean, like, yeah, I well, it's well before, well before that sort of nadir of I'll just do whatever movie you want if you pay me a million dollars and I'll just sleepwalk through it. But Hearts War was around, what, 2004? I'm going to guess 2001 or 2002. Yeah, so that, that, was that film
0: wasn't huge, huge success. So I think he was definitely on his A-game in 98- with Armageddon. He
1: feels pretty committed in this, right? Yeah,
0: yeah. In many films these days, he appears to be sleeping. Various. This things. film, he actually seems to be quite committed. He's awake. He's awake. That's a start. That's, that's the point we are with Bruce Willis. There's sleepy and alert. And if he's alert, it's a better version of Bruce Willis. He's
1: kind of sleepy in the sixth sense, though, but it works for the character. Yeah, and he does sleepy in glass and doesn't work. No. In that case. no. Maybe maybe an old man being sleepy is just a sleepy old man, whereas a middle-aged man being sleepy is a choice, (laughs) (laughs) an actor's choice. I don't know.
0: I love it. Okay, so if Ben Affleck benefited the most out of anyone in this film, who didn't? Did it ruin the career of anyone who came out on the bottom?
1: I don't think she came out on the bottom, but it was certainly a peak for Liv Tyler probably, right? I mean- did she – oh, no, she was in the Lord of the Rings movies, I guess.
0: Yeah, but this was probably a bigger role, oh. wasn't it? I think this was like probably – this one, Lord of the Rings, I think were the last big films that she made. There was The Strangers, which was a smaller film oh, in comparison. That. When I think of Liv Tyler, I
1: pretty much only think of Armageddon. Uh, Stealing Beauty and oh, yeah? yep. One Night at McCool's. Okay, L- like I less, said. <laughs> less, less McCool's. <laughs> sure. Okay.
0: With this newly named award, the best character name, I think we called it the Memphis Reigns Award, who has the most glorious name of anyone in Armageddon?
1: Who's got the best name? Oh, uh, okay. 100% this award goes to the big man, Colonel Willie Sharp. How could you? W- w- Willie Sharp. Surely in America, Willie means dick, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, so that's yeah. not like just some Australian thing. Dick Sharp. And that's the character I mean played dick by Sharp. William William, Fickner. Fickner. William Dickner, William Dickner. William Willie Dickness Sharp. I love it. Willie Sharp. love, I love these names. So, you've got Bruce Willis,
0: Harry Stamper, stamps around cranky. You've got Billy Bob Thornton playing Dan Truman. That's very presidential. He's an authentic guy, right? He tells the truth.
1: Oh, yeah. He tells it how it is. He's a true man. Uh, He's got a limp. He should be called, like, Dan Limpy Truman, like, Limpsburg or something. Yeah. Metal leg.
0: Dan, uh, ideological. You've got Ben Affleck playing AJ Frost. Because he's the cooler character. You've got Steve Buscemi playing Rockhound. Does he even have like a first name? No, it's no. just Rockhound. Okay, Rockhound. You've got Fair Michael enough. Clark Duncan playing Bear, speaks for itself, sure. big guy.
1: Do any other characters have names?
0: <laughs> yeah, Jason Isaacs, who you like, played Weird. Ronald
1: Quincy. Ron Quincy. Yep, Ron Quincy. No, well, he's he's from MIT and he's a scientist. He'd be Ronald. Oh, of course he would be. You don't shorten. Of course he would be. Okay,
0: that award to me goes to- Oh, for me, it's got to be Harry Stamper.
1: No, Willie Sharp.
0: Willie Sharp, Willie Sharp. Okay. Sharp. The Memphis Reigns Award for Armageddon goes to Willie Sharp. Willie Sharp. All right. Now, there are too many quotes here, but give me a top two or three best quotes from Armageddon. It is actually more quotes than dialogue. Yeah, yeah. It's a quote strung with a quote strung with a quote.
1: It sort of partly feels like it's been expertly written by automatons, you know whole series of, and it's got quite a few writers on this. I think Jonathan, a whole bunch of like, who did write this? Jonathan Hensley? Yeah, Jonathan Hensley, J.J. Abrams, Tony Gilroy, Shane Solano. Four screenwriters. Yeah. They got that weird adaption by credit in it. So What it's did like, they adapt? Well, I guess- and, An earlier screenplay. Yeah, it must have been. Gilroy and Solano have an adaption by credit. Hensley and J.J. Abrams have the screenplay credit. And then Robert Roy Poole and Jonathan Hensley have the story by credit. So, somewhere in there, they must have written some scripts and then discarded those scripts.
0: That sounds like one of those credits to get round the fact that there were too many screenwriters on board, it was getting messy, and to avoid arbitration with WGA or something. Well,
1: it is a WGA film, so that's what the WGA – but you just don't see adaptation by very much, do you?
0: I think the rule is, though, correct me if I'm wrong, you actually can't have more than four credited screenwriting teams or screenwriters per script. So it means the most you can have are eight. No, you could have basically, let's say you had four screenwriting teams of two people each, that's eight credited people or four individuals, in this case- I think they're all credited individually without the yeah, and, and in between. Not so for that reason maybe they had to pull in the adapter to try and get round there'd be actually more than four credited I, writers. I
1: guess for writing nerds out there, it's a, it's one of those rare Pokemons, you know. Oh, adaptation credit, oh what could it mean? Anyway, who knows? Catch that credit where you but, can but there's a bunch of pretty talented writers here busting out some pretty good lines of dialogue. You gotta wonder though if like Tony Gilroy was writing some of this shit just fucking like, Oh yeah, here we go. Here's oh. a so, there are so
0: many. I mean, here's one of the lines from Rockhound, played by Steve Buscemi, goes, quote, just wanted to feel the power between my legs, brother, which I think is referring to one of those um, rocket rides, isn't it?
1: I mean, it feels like, you know, Rockhound's thing where he's like, you know, we're sitting on four million pounds of fuel, one nuclear weapon, and a thing that has 270,000 moving parts built by the lowest bidder makes you feel good, doesn't it? It's basically him just playing the exact same character from Con Air. You know, like that the, the smart aleck guy who's going to sit there and point out a thing and he turns out to be crazy, but you like him. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Exactly. I love uh, your mate, uh, Willie Sharp. His quote is, and this basically sets up the whole stakes for the film for these characters, like how dramatic it is. And the quote goes, United States astronauts trained for years, you have 12 days. I love that. It's just like yeah. basically these guys have sort to of prove themselves against all odds, and these are the odds. But it's then, incredibly unlikely.
1: And at the end of the movie, he's like, Liv Tyler. I just want to shake your hand because you're the daughter of the bravest man I ever dang met. <laughs> um, and I love that bit. I love that bit when Will Patton goes to see his son or whatever before the mission, and his ex-wife, you know, won't let him see his son. You feel like Michael Bay probably himself had some problems in the family court or something? You know he's one of those guys. <laughs> anyway, she won't let him see his son, so he leaves a little toy, and then later the kid is watching the space launch, and he sees the salesman fat Naz, and then she's like, that's not a salesman. That's, that's your it's- daddy. Yeah. It's just like, oh, shit. <laughs> Fuck. I hope someone got paid a million dollars for that salesman crap. I love
0: AJ's line, which is, uh, have you ever heard of Evil Knievel? And the Russian goes, no, I never saw Star Wars. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, terrible.
0: All right. Okay. So moving on, moving on, moving on, moving on. So let's do an overall view, toe-to-toe, glove-to-glove, Armageddon versus Deep Impact. I think we know the answer here. But just a few specifics. Which film has aged better?
1: Oh, Armageddon is still very very rewatchable. I think
0: Armageddon ages better in all sorts of ways. One really bad part about Deep Impact, I noticed, is the graphics are terrible. Like Like the graphics in Star Wars. No, the graphics on computer screens and email and pulling up AOL. And it's like when you have those films that go, this is technology. And rather than actually just sort of moving through the story where the technology is incidental, they spend a lot of time kind of emphasizing how they use email because they're modern astronomers Um. and they work in the government. It's so funny to watch Star Wars, which is 20 years earlier than this. Its graphics stand up better because they're more kind of integrated to the story. They don't want to focus in too hard, but some of the graphics in this are goddamn awful. So that and the lack of visual flair, the lack of a distinctive visual style for me have made the film age badly in comparison to Armageddon. I think you know the answer. Which film was the box office winner? Have a guess.
1: Oh, it's got to be Armageddon, right?
0: Yep. So Armageddon grossed $201,000 at the US box office.
1: 201 million.
0: Sorry, 201 million. Yeah. Jesus. (laughs) Plus $352 million at the foreign box office for a worldwide total of about $554 million. In comparison, Deep Impact pulled in $140,000. 140 million at domestic, 209 million foreign for grand title of 350 million. So it did about 200 million less overall. So Deep Impact definitely lost out in the box office regard. However, we come to which movie was most successful
1: with the critics. Have a guess. Look, I'm going to say Deep Impact just because it seems
0: like. Okay, so it's a pretty low bar. (laughs) Rotten Tomatoes. Deep Impact had a 45% score.
1: Okay, didn't love it. Sure.
0: Armageddon. 38%. 38%. So, it's close. Yeah. Now, interestingly, Armageddon, though, had a 73% audience score, which is dramatically different.
1: And I think- I think Deep I...
0: Impact had only 43%. So, basically, they're reversed.
1: You know, I think people wouldn't be ashamed of saying they enjoy Armageddon these days. Like, I think you described it before as, like, a guilty pleasure. And, yeah, you know, like, I don't think people will be like, oh, I'm, i got to hide the fact that I like Armageddon or something. I so mean, I... a lot of people hate the fucking movie. Don't get me wrong. There's a lot of people who think it's just- super shit That's fine Look, you
0: know simon west uh with conair or Michael bay with the rock and armageddon back in the 90s you know when people started saying that bacon was cool because it was so daggy it was cool again people basically embrace something old as cool 20 years down the track so i think armageddon has street cred and to your point earlier if criterion actually would launch that on their blu-ray that says a lot
1: are they bringing it back out on – they're surely not. They brought it out in like 1999 on DVD. They're not re-releasing it, are they? Oh, I Imagine think it's that. a whole
0: tension. I know right. there's certainly been a point where people have demanded more Michael Bay films be released on Criterion,
1: those, but they, they haven't been. It's so hard to tell if people are being ironic these days. Yeah.
0: I think, again, it's back to the idea of being contrary to say that something that was daggy back in the day is now super cool in the present. Right, right. So – I think we know the answer to this question. Which film is your winning guilty pleasure?
1: Armageddon. Armageddon, right. Armageddon, totally. Armageddon. I mean, I will watch Armageddon another few times. Maybe I'll never hit 30 or 40. You know, maybe maybe it'll get into those double digits. I will unlikely watch Deep Impact again. Maybe I'll watch it again. I'll, watch yeah. it, I'll probably watch it again at some point.
0: I can't see myself revisiting Deep Impact anytime in the nearby future. No. But again, my experience was definitely polluted by the fact that I hadn't seen it when it originally came out in the cinema. I missed the big screen experience, and then I had basically Armageddon burrowing into my brain for 20 years, thus kind of making me quite partial to its interpretation of that central high concept. So let's wrap this bad boy up. But before we do, really quickly, off the cuff, I know we haven't had a chance to discuss this beforehand, but if there's a third dream movie out there that was to be actually made in real life or if at the time there was a third movie coming out, Taking the best elements of Deep Impact and Armageddon, such as the plot, cast, rector, etc., could you pitch me a basic story or any basic elements, the best of the best, that make an even better third movie?
1: Probably not. I mean, maybe you could toss uh, Ron Eldard and Blair Underwood and John Favreau and, and Robert Duvall just onto the flight team of Armageddon. That'd be a bit of fun, wouldn't it? Yeah. You know, there's Johnny Favreau there, you get blasted out into space or something again. Yeah, the, but, the only
0: thing I can think of is perhaps adding maybe the elements of the seed bank or really amplifying the moral conundrum of who do we choose to save. But then again, that feels like its own film as well. I mean, you well. could
1: edit all of Morgan Freeman into Armageddon probably pretty seamlessly. Oh, that'd be good. I mean, you could definitely do that. And maybe that's about it. Maybe that's all you want. Yep, the, not- there is the president in Armageddon. He does give some speech. And I just can't remember what it is. Yeah. But he's very generic. Yeah. Whereas that's at it. least Morgan Freeman is a he's Morgan Freeman. And yeah, you, could, yeah. you could cut him into the end. You know, his end speech of deep impact. You could bang that in. Because he doesn't have much to do with the rest of the Yeah, you could you could cut him in easily. but some that act- 10 minutes screen time, boom, But some actors
0: have great gravitas and oh. small roles can really shine. Like there's the president in what's that film with Bruce Willis and the orange-headed alien girl? Um, oh, Fifth Element. Fifth element. That president's in it for a really short time. But with his voice and his sense of authority-
1: Is that Tiny Lister? Yeah. The,
0: the, yeah. 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 That's
1: great. He's great. Tiny role,
0: but he's very commanding as the President of the United States. And I think Morgan Freeman has the same sense of presence. Like everyone respects Morgan Freeman as an actor. He's got a great voice. I think you're right. If you actually edited him into Armageddon and basically perhaps had him, I guess like a his foot on the back of- truman the character played by blue bob thornton mm. basically demanding results essentially and truman having to say you need to be patient we'll do the best we can and thus he's caught in a rock in a hard place
1: that could be a better third film i wouldn't be surprised if you went to like fanedit.com or something someone hadn't just cut his scenes into the movie you could probably fairly seamlessly just bung them in there. But then if you want the seed bank, you could probably just bung all the 2012 shit in there. You could probably bung a whole bunch of these movies, just create the ultimate Roland Emmerich, Michelangelo Bay, idiot bell disaster movie. You could cut Woody Harrelson being smashed by the rocks, in the meteorites in Yosemite into Armageddon Look, mate, if you wanted.
0: You and I are too busy, so let's reach out to Topher Grace, who's been yeah. known as the master fan editor, and get our own fan film version on our own new YouTube channel called viral fan film favorites and we'll do a mega mix of 2012 combined with deep impact armageddon
1: combined with deep impact day after tomorrow could be in there i mean Hell all yeah. movies, i couldn't even tell you what happens in any of them i mean i remember stuff from them. But what movie were they from who knows gabe last words life finds a way uh which one's that from <laughs> uh Jurassic park classic i don't know how we get the dinosaurs in there but baby we'll get there oh, oh w- mate it's been a- oh what else well i was gonna say Armageddon opens with the dinosaurs being killed. Maybe there is a way. Charlton ah. Heston narrates the opening, so maybe you could do that. Doesn't Transformers two do the same thing? I've fucking purged those transformers. Those are the things. That was- so there you go. There's Michael Bay
0: uh, copying himself again. Any final words on the toe to toe, the Rocky four of twin movies, Deep Impact versus Armageddon?
1: I don't think it's nearly as close as you know Rocky vs Drago. I think this is a. I don't think there's any comeback. I think this is a pretty clear knockout. I think yeah. you're
0: right. I think you're right. So, Gabe, it's been a pleasure, mate. Until next time, peace, over and out. Actually, we need some sort of farewell that relates to twin movies.
1: Oh, is- oh like we both say the words at the same time. No, that's, that's lame. Maybe we should, yeah, I don't know. That's something to work on. Okay. Yeah. All right. Until next time, see you later.